Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I've got a trivia question to start today. Which of the famed and beloved Dr. Seuss children's books was his favorite? I'm going to give you three, two, one. It was The Lorax, a tale of environmental threats written for kids. That was more than 50 years ago. Today, more and more authors are aiming at a younger audience trying to grapple with the effects of climate change. The best of them help readers understand what's happening, accept that it's scary, and use that emotion as the spark to work for a better future. We'll turn a few pages to look at two books, how they were created, and why. Also this week, Ontario's election and what it means for the country's fight against emissions and the mystery surrounding the sighting of an animal in Labrador. It's one that should be familiar to What on Earth listeners, but not to the people who live in Nunezivut. And therein lies a tale you'll want to stick around for, one that mixes myth with the mystery. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. I think about it pretty often. Sometimes it just kind of pops into my mind and stuff. I'm pretty scared that people don't do things soon enough until it is too hard and too far past the breaking point to fix. That is Ivy Bryce. She's 10 years old and she's already worried about climate change and what it will mean for her future. She also loves books. And lucky for her, a growing number of kids' books about climate change are being published. Our producer, Kristen Nelson, spoke with kids and authors about this growing trend in children's literature, and she joins me now. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Laura. How are you? It's great to be here. I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? Have you read any good books about climate change lately? You know, not lately, but I do have very vivid memories of reading Barbara Kingsolver's book, Flight Behavior, right after my first daughter was born. And it stayed with me because this it's an allegory about how losing the monarch butterflies might be a sign of things to come, of what we're going to lose with climate change. And now I have two daughters who are worried about nature and animals they hear about climate change, and I've been looking for books to help them get their heads around it. Okay, well, that I mean, we know it's a lot for adults to face when we talk about climate change. There's so many emotions, so much to think about. And for kids, it must be so much more even to be able to just grasp it. So, so what have you found? Well, first off, that there's a lot of great books out there. Just a couple weeks ago, our colleagues at CBC Books, they compiled a list of Canadian books for kids to read on Earth Day. And we'll tweet that out so people can find it if they're interested. And it really does look like both the supply and the demand of these kind of books is growing. And there's some actual market research out there that shows sales of children's books about the environment grew nearly 70 percent between 2019 and 2021. I'm going to tell you about just two books that were written 
with the input of experts in the field. Okay, well, but experts in what? Experts in kids or experts in climate change? (laughs) Well, both, actually. One is co-authored by internationally renowned climatologist Michael E. Mann. It includes some digestible science for kids. But the first book I want to tell you about is called Coco's Fire, Changing Climate Anxiety into Climate Action. Now, this book follows the story of a lovable little squirrel named Coco who has to face her fears about climate change. It's written by Jeremy Wurzel, his partner Lena Champlin, and a group called the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry's Climate Committee. You don't often see that on uh, book authors' uh, placements. So psychiatrists were actually working on the book? Exactly. Yeah, they're they're co-authors, this committee. Um, And the book is specifically written to address the concerns of a kid like Ivy. She read the book, and we're going to hear from her again in just a little bit. But first, we'll hear from one of the authors, Jeremy Wurzel. So this story is supposed to model what we call the climate talk. It's a conversation that a caregiver, parent, clinician has with a young person. And we model it through the journey of a young squirrel. For Coco, Pine Park was perfect because it was home and she loved it, just as it was. One day, Papa Pecan got mail from his sister, who said that a fire in her forest just missed her. Dear Coco and Pecan, I write to say hi. These fires are bad, but don't worry, we're fine. We're staying with friends, though we may need to move to find a new home if things don't improve. I'm scared of these fires. They get worse and worse. I'm scared climate change is changing our earth. That's all for me now. I miss you both so. With love from Aunt Hazel, XOXO. My name is Jeremy Wurzel. I'm just finishing up medical school here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And my background's in geology, but I also study pediatric mental health. My fiance is an environmental science PhD student at a children's natural history museum at the Academy of Natural Science here in Philadelphia. And so we had lots of conversations about how to communicate challenging topics to young people. And the idea for this story arrived from a conversation that Lena, my partner, had with a student that she was working with. A young five-year-old girl came into the academy. My fiance was having a little booth about climate change and she said oh let me do you know about climate change and the caregiver of this young person kind of rushed over and said oh we don't talk about that yet and when lena came home and, and and told me about this story it called into mind a lot of the conversations i have about birds and the bees death and divorce dying all of these things that are challenging for young people to process emotionally and it really called into question how we navigate this conversation. And after digging into it, there's not a lot of resources for families and caregivers to really pursue this. And so we realized that there was a major gap that we could fill. It's hard to control when your child hears about climate change, whether it's on part of the news or in our book, we have an aunt who experiences some climate disaster and writes a letter. And this really manifests an anxiety in young Coco. And what we try to do is throughout the book, embed psychoeducation. So this was written by a team of psychiatrists. We really tried to conduct an extensive literature review on the resources that were available for parents. And we tried to create a narrative that hopefully addresses the psychoeducational steps in in an age appropriate way. We then try to represent what some of these anxieties might look like. And all the illustrations are done by my fiance, Lena Champlin. At lunch, little Coco could not eat at all or even play catch with her acorn-shaped ball. 
She ran to her room and slammed shut the door, but didn't quite know what she did all that for. Poor Coco felt worried. Her legs felt like jelly. She felt like those fires were inside her belly. And so what we try to do here is create a manifestation of their anxiety to name this anxiety. And so we create this fire creature that attempts to kind of change with her. Papa Pecan asked Coco as they walked through the park, has your worrying fire become a new spark? I get climate change. I'm feeling less scared. What can I do? Are there others who care? Oh, you're not alone. There's others you'll find. There look, Pepper Possum and kids holding signs. Hey Pepper, what's up? Are you busy today? Come march about climate. We've something to say. Um, and you can see that she's now joining this community of activists, right? And as she does so, this is the next page where they're starting to um, put up a wind turbine in their community, but her little fire is now changing from this scary red uh, to yellow and then ultimately to a blue flame that kind of, again, is this physical incarnation of hopefully the anxiety changing into an empowering feeling. And ultimately, this is the last page. At home in Pine Park, the sun slowly set. What a beautiful place to love and protect. And Coco now knew how to change her scared fire from a flame causing worry to a friend who inspires. Hello, I'm Ivy. I live in Ottawa, Ontario, and I'm 10 years old. Yes, I did read the book. I liked the part about like the earth and its blankets because I felt that that really is true. They go to like this lab and this owl says the earth has blankets and to keep it the right temperature, but with using oil and gas and stuff like that, we add more blankets on top and it's the earth is overheating and stuff. Climate-related distress or climate anxiety uh, is a growing threat. There's a recent article that uh, conducted an incredible 10,000-person survey for 16 to 25-year-olds asking them about their feelings about climate change and climate anxiety. And the results are, are unfortunately not surprising. You know, over half are either worried to extremely worried about their future climate health. Something like 40% are hesitant to even have children because of these ramifications. And so these are things young people are feeling. I liked the part with the breathing stuff because... I think that would be very helpful for a lot of people. I personally already knew that exercise and I use it. And basically you breathe in, you count to four, and you breathe out and imagine that you're blowing out candles. And then it helps you concentrate and breathe. The fear, I don't think it'll ever like go away completely. Because obviously climate change is, I'm pretty sure, always going to be a thing. Um, but yeah, uh, the breathing and stuff like that, it, it does help. It helps. Helps, like in the book, they say like a fire inside you. And it helps cool down that fire, which is the fear and stuff like that. I feel like sometimes being a kid, you kind of feel like you don't have as much power. But, like, for example, Greta, Greta Thunberg, uh, she has 
showed that like kids do have the power and stuff. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. One thing that kept coming up time and time again in my research was this age-old narrative that has traditionally been used to describe climate change. My generation messed up. Good luck fixing it. And that is so inherently alienating, isolating, daunting, but it's so embedded in our culture that like, um, like, well, the Lorax. You destroyed everything. Yes. And each day since the Lorax left, I've sat here regretting everything I've done. I'm not dissing Dr. Seuss. He's such a pinnacle of my, my, my childhood. But, you know, the ones that are throwing the seed to the next generation at the very end of the Lorax is kind of hearkening to that same idea of good luck. The last Truffula seed. You need to plant it, Ted. Yeah, but nobody cares about trees anymore. Then make them care. Plant the seed in the middle of town where everyone can see. Change the way things are. I know it may seem the, the, the growing sensation that I think has to really catch on is shifting that narrative to one that's really welcoming this young generation into a thriving community of activists, politicians, scientists, all thinking about this issue already. Essentially, they're not alone. This is not on their shoulders. They are joining people that are really concerned about this and are already thinking about this issue. Yeah, sometimes there is some pressure because grown-ups are always saying like, oh yeah, you need to fix all the world's problems. But like, I hope that more people, like not only this generation, but the generations to come, try and solve and come up with ways to help and or stop climate change. Oh, that Ivy. <laughs> She's looking for solutions. We're looking for solutions. You know what? I think Ivy should actually tune in to the show if she isn't already, and, and we can look for solutions together. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch, and I'm joined by producer Kristen Nelson. You know, it's really nice to hear that Ivy found some comfort in Jeremy's book and also some really concrete tools for dealing with her fears. Yeah, I agree. I was really moved talking with her. And, and, you know, she's not alone in feeling fear around climate change. That study that Jeremy mentioned found that 59% of the 10,000 young people around the world that they surveyed were very or extremely worried about climate change. That's a lot. It is, but it actually doesn't surprise me at all. And it's it also makes it not surprising that the demand for kids' books about the subject is is up. Um I was I was struck by how much of Coco's story was informed by the psychological research, though. So um, let's try this other book that you mentioned. This is the one that's co-written by climatologist Michael E. Mann. Yes, exactly. And it has a lot of the same themes. Another female protagonist who is overwhelmed by the realities of climate change. But it also includes a science section at the back of the book to help kids appreciate the way climate change is affecting different parts of the world and different species. Have a listen. My name's Megan Herbert, and I'm the writer and illustrator of The Tantrum That Saved the World. 
which I was very lucky to have Dr. Michael E. Mann make a contribution to. This is what we climate scientists predicted decades ago. Um, we said that if we don't stop burning fossil fuels and elevating the levels of carbon pollution in the atmosphere, we will see unprecedented heat waves and wildfires and floods and droughts and superstorms. And guess what? That's what we're seeing. It was back in 2013. Um, I was living in Iceland in Reykjavik and he came there as part of a conference which was aimed to bring together climate scientists and storytellers and filmmakers, of which I was one. And so I went to some of these presentations and particularly was very moved by his one. He's very good at communicating about climate change and really getting to the heart of the issue. What we're seeing now, the models tell us, is baked in. That's what we're going to have to deal with now for years to come. It gets worse if we don't reduce carbon emissions dramatically in the years ahead. Um, and although I was aware of what was going on, I wasn't fully aware until I'd sort of seen his presentation. And I caught up with him afterwards and said, look, have you ever thought about trying to write a children's book about this? Um, I had a one-year-old baby at home and it was just really at the, at the front of my mind. And uh, he said, I've been thinking about it a lot because his daughter was about five or six, I think, at the time. And he said, the problem is I don't know who to do it with. And so I sort of said, hello, here I am. After approaching several mainstream publishers who were a bit confused by the project because we were trying to do both a storybook and a science book together, and that didn't fit into their neat categories. of They didn't know how to market it. And I said, look, we know what we want to do. We know that to tell this story and to give kids the information they need we actually need all those elements. So we self-published the first edition. And so the edition that's just come out now is actually, in a sense, a second edition, but finally out with some proper distribution. So it begins with a little girl named Sophia, and she's just minding her business and really isn't somebody who's focused on the environment or climate change in any way. And in fact, she gets her regular life gets quite interrupted by an unexpected series of visitors and it starts with a polar bear and then we meet all sorts of um, different climate refugees, both animal and human, from all different parts of the world, endangered species, um, different types of people doing different jobs as well, really trying to get a broad cross-section because of course this is an issue that will affect every corner of the globe. A sad swarm of bees had not one idea. If spring had just come, or fall was quite near. A pale pink flamingo, hungry and weak, bugged a sea turtle whose outlook was bleak. Both were upset that the sights of their nests were being disrupted by unwanted guests. Farmers whose farmland was withered and dry griped with the seaman who couldn't get by. Where had the fish gone? Where was the rain? They wanted to work more, not sit and complain. A large Bengal tiger just chuffed with dismay. Everyone wisely stayed out of his way. And she, of course, is, begins by being sort of upset and dis feeling disrupted and rejects their requests for help and doesn't know how to do anything about it and is overwhelmed and goes through all the emotions that not only children but also adults go through when they start to realise what's going on. They all turned to face her with hope in their eyes, expecting Sophia to halt their demise. 
I'm just a kid. What can I do? Someone must help us. It's now up to you. Sophia, by this time, felt nothing but stress. Her day was disrupted. Her house was a mess. She had no idea how she ought to begin to help them all out of the bind they were in. Unable to put up a front anymore, she went to her bedroom and slammed shut the door. So that's a section where she's not coping whatsoever and then has to sort of go through the process on her own of of thinking, why are they doing this? Why are they asking this of me? She moves through that and once she understands that these stories, while these things aren't happening to her, they may, they're all interconnected, number one, which means it may be a matter of time before this happens to her as well. And then she says to herself, well, I'm going to try and convert all those feelings of frustration into action. Why do we want There's a young Canadian climate activist, Sophia Mather. The character was not named Sophia after that Sophia. We'd not actually been in touch before. And in fact, the book was written pre-youth climate movement and pre-Greta. So in a sense, it was a bit prophetic. Sophia and I have since been in touch. Hi, my name is Sophia Mather. I'm 15 years old and I'm a climate activist from Sudbury, Ontario. So I hadn't heard about the book until I got sort of a message on Twitter and the author, Megan, actually told me that, oh, you're kind of like my real life Sophia. So she decided to send send us a copy of the book, Sophia's Climate Tantrum, and I got to read it and it's a super cute book and I've shared it with uh, some of my younger cousins. I've told them about it and they're really excited because it's a good book for that the type of younger audience, like eight or seven years old. It's really about people finding their voice and moving through that all those difficult emotions which we experience. And I mean, adults that I know in the climate world are really going through climate grief at the moment. And it's about having to reframe that and say, right, well, what can I do? What's in my power? How can I turn that around and do something else? I like Sophia. I love how she was so open to letting all the the animals and the people in. And, you know, tantrums are usually bad, uh, but when it comes to saving the world, she was in the right place and she, she took action. And I think we need a lot more kids like Sophia and adults like Sophia in this world. It's kind of weird to say it because my name is Sophia, but yeah. <laughs> I always feel a little bit sad that I had to write this book with Michael and I am, as anyone who's following the climate crisis, it gets harder by the year um, to put a positive spin on things. However, um, I think the most positive thing to come up in the last um, five to ten years is the youth movement. I really hold out hope for the fact that we will have enough um, people in power. The words of these young people will actually affect them to do something in time. It helps Sophia to take action and to protest and do all those things. Uh, So I do think any form of art, including writing, is a great way to empower people to get involved and help them figure out what they want to do. It's something that can really get uh, kids inspired to do something and and throw their own uh, tantrum for the climate and, you know, 
show adults that we want action and especially what Sophia did she she talked to politicians and she got her city to do things at the end of the book so I definitely think that's great that was great. I'm, I was so interesting. First of all, I noticed it, Kristen, that in both of those books, the character goes and has a tantrum and you know shuts themselves in their rooms, which is a very kid thing to do. But it was also wonder. It was wonderful hearing from Sophia Mather, who I met a few years ago when she was much younger and already involved in in climate activism. So it's kind of it's really kind of cool the way the book features the same name as her, and she's got this connection to it. Yeah, Sophia even wrote a blurb that's on the book's cover. She could almost be Sophia, and I think that, that she probably thinks that, too. I mean, we, we know we're all going to have to physically adapt to climate change, but I am so struck about how different parts of the culture are also adapting to the massive challenge as time goes by. So, Kristen, thank you so much for bringing us this story and for bringing us the books. Thank you, Laura. are listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM and CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Laura Lynch and we do love hearing from you. So whether you're feeling the impact of climate change in your community or you're doing something to combat it, let us know about it. Earth at cbc.ca is our email address. And if you don't mind us giving you a call back, include your phone number. plastic oh i forgot my own bags um plastic no wait paper hang on which one's better i don't know don't stress neil the podcast living planet is here to help we know you want to do what's right for the planet but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day so we endeavor to answer what's better cotton or polyester tea or coffee for answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions subscribe to living planet wherever you listen to podcasts A couple of weeks ago, we took you out snowshoeing in the forest near Golden, B.C., in part of a climate refugia, a place that will stay cooler and snowier even as southern B.C. gets hotter and drier in the coming decades. That's where Ph.D. candidate Miriam Barreto is looking for wolverines. This seemed like a logical place to study them because if we can keep the population strong here, or if we can improve it, then we also know that their habitat's actually going to stick around. Now, scientists say that between development and climate change, the world of the wolverine is shrinking. But once upon a time, they lived all across Canada, including Newfoundland and Labrador. The last confirmed glimpse of the critter there was about 70 years ago. But now there is a glimmer of hope in Labrador. Jim Gowdy is the Deputy Minister of Land and Natural Resources for the Nunatsiavut government. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. This all started with a Facebook message in March. Tell me what happened. 
Yeah, so I was actually, uh, I had just gotten home from a work trip. So it was uh, in the evening, I believe it was March 6th. I had a, a Facebook message from a, from a young trapper, a female in, in a local community here, uh, saying she thought she might have had a picture of a wolverine that she'd like for me to see. It was a trail cam pic. Yeah. It was a, tra- a trail cam pic. What, so tell me what was in the photo. So uh, essentially, it's, I guess, the back three quarters of an animal. You don't see it, but his head is actually down trying to scavenge from a from a bait bucket. So she had put this trail cam up. She liked taking pictures of otters, and she uh, happened to get this pic that didn't fit in with the rest of them. So uh, She had the body, but it was sort of headless in the shot. What, what did you think when you saw this? I have to say I was, I was excited. It's been, it's been a long time here where we had anything kind of that could even be remotely called conclusive. Um, and, and certainly, you know, pictures are, are, are super rare. So um, excited, but I, I, I kind of wanted to contain my excitement and uh, make sure that we did, you know, our due diligence to, to see if we could actually identify exactly what was in the photograph. Okay, so that's what you did. You sent it around to, to experts, and what? So tell us now. I'm excited. What's the verdict on what the animal is? <laughs> so the verdict is that it can't be any known animal that currently resides in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that 99% sure it's a wolverine. But that one little percent there kind of makes us hesitate to publicly say, "Yeah, we've got a." for sure, positive identification for, for a wolverine. For all, you know, intended purposes, it, it is a wolverine. We just don't want to publicly come out and say that because we're not, you know, that 100%. <laughs> so is it 99% or 99.99%? I would say it's probably more closer to 99.9% that, it, <laughs> that what she has on camera in that photo is a wolverine. Boy, that one little tenth of a percent must just niggle at you. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 been a long process, and we've had a lot of I, I guess I don't want to call them uh, high hopes where they where they kind of plummeted, but we've had a number of reports. We usually get one or two reports every year of tracks or somebody had seen one, but they didn't have their camera. So year after year after year after year after that, and we did a significant amount of research work in the early two thousands where we 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 kind of came up empty handed. Have you ever seen a wolverine? I haven't. So what, what, why is this so exciting to you then? I mean, did, were you learning about them growing up? Well, I, you know, every Nunatsivut Inuit, I guess, has, you know, some kind of connection, heard some story from, from their past, especially if their 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 grandparents or great-grandparents or even their fathers were trappers. You know, we, we had a history there before they, they disappeared. And you know, I remember the stories my grandfather told me when I was a young boy growing up. Um, so there was there was always some interest there, but as you know, I kind of progressed through my career and started working at species at risk and in the wildlife field. You know, wolverine is one of those ones where it's one of those rare species in Labrador because it's such a pristine environment. Um, to have a species that no longer lives in your region is is you know you kind of wanted to understand why and if you possibly could rectify that. Can you tell me the, about the stories that your grandfather told you? <laughs> Most of my stories, and it's, it's uh, you know, viewers need to be, I guess, cognizant of the cultural relationship with the Wolverine, not just for Inuit peoples, but all Inuit, all indigenous peoples in, in Labrador was, it wasn't a very highly respected animal. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. So my, my grandfather's stories are all interactions in where, you know, the, the outcome wasn't great for him. 
Like the Wolverine had broken into his trap and tilt and just destroyed everything and made sure it defecated on everything and eat his, you know, even chewed up the kettle, which is funny because, you know, I've actually seen the kettle that the Wolverine chewed up years after the cabin was abandoned. Chewed up the the what? His his kettle for boiling tea. Ah, he chewed Wolverine up his chewed, <laughs> He chewed up the kettle, yeah. What? Yeah, so I mean, fifty years later, me and my brothers had, had gone to go see it, and we actually found this kittle, and you could still see the, the teeth marks in it. Wow! So they yeah. they were regarded as as little more than pests, right? With with those jaws and those teeth. I wouldn't classify them so much as a pest as something that you really had to see, especially, you know, back in, uh, you know, before modern technology was kind of introduced to Inuit peoples in Labrador was it sometimes your interactions with Wolverine were life or death situations. You know, if you had a food cache placed out and uh, you you were depending on that food cache to kind of get you through these certain months of the year and a Wolverine got in and ate it, you were you were facing starvation. Uh, yeah, well, that that's more serious. You, you were once part of the Wolverine research program, as you said. What, in I, I was, yes. Yeah, in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so what were you looking for back then? Was it, was it you, you talked before about finding out why they disappeared and if you could return them? There was some talks about returning them, but that wasn't certainly wasn't led by the indigenous peoples of Labrador. I, I certainly wasn't, I guess, on that side of, of history. Um, first, we wanted to know whether or not, we wanted to be 100% sure whether or not Wolverine still existed in our area. So, you know, we flew the, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in partnership with us and other indigenous groups flew what at the time, and I think I think still is the largest, you know, survey area by geographic area ever covered in our province. Um, we didn't find anything. So then we kind of started, you know, more on the ground efforts in, in areas we thought were probably, uh, you know, Good, good habitat for wolverines with hair snagging poles, trail cams, etc. And uh, we we didn't find anything. We did have a, a very concentrated research effort and a very very concentrated stewardship effort as well because we kind of had to, I guess, change the mindset of the people. If we did find a wolverine, you know, how would the general public, Nunatsuit beneficiaries, kind of react to that? Well, tell me more more about changing the mindset. Yeah, it's it's funny because at the time, you know, some of these programs, research projects we were doing and the stewardship products we were producing were funded partially by the federal government and they were always asking us for results. You know, oftentimes I'd have to go and present to, to Ottawa or, or elsewhere and say, you know, my result is if we find a Wolverine and he walks through a room with a bunch of my people, he can walk to, through the room. He, he's not automatically killed. There's a huge cultural piece here that you guys are just trying to whitewash over and say, well, you know, we'll just reintroduce or, you know, Wolverine will be fine. It's like, no, you have to change the perspectives that this creature will be once again allowed to live in his home if he ever decides to come back. It's such a disrespect, I guess, for the animal. And it, it was a cultural disrespect. I mean, we, it, it wasn't like raccoons eating your garbage. This was a deep-seated a long-term cultural, I guess, uh, cultural issue. But that happened. The cultural shift occurred. Yeah, like I, I, I you know, it, it would have been quite easy for that young trapper to never ever mention it, or you know, start setting more traps to try to catch this animal. But that's not what she did, and I think that you know just goes to show the kind of cultural shift. Is the first thing she did was 
I remember I'm supposed to call wildlife. Huh. And that's what she did. Would it, would it be going too far to say that, that they suddenly started to see Wolverine as a noble animal? I don't think so. I don't think it would be too far. I think more. I think if the process occurred naturally where we had found a Wolverine that had come home to Nunatsivut uh, on its own, I think the majority of the general public in Nunatsivut would be very pleased by that. And, why, and so is that part of the reason why you think it would be important to see the Wolverine's return? Absolutely. I knew Nazi Wood was its home for a very, very, very long time, and I'd love to see it return. Tell me more about that, what it, what it would mean to you. It's it's hard to put into words. It just, you know, it, you know that an aspect, and to those viewers out there, it's, you know, the worldview of Inuit peoples is everything is connected. We're, you know, we're a part of the land. So having an aspect of that it, that doesn't exist there anymore is something's missing. Even though it was a, you know, not really a celebrated part of that relationship you have with who you are and, and your culture and the land. Now, I know that depending on the place, there are a lot of things that can be bad for wolverines. We've been learning about that, but I'm wondering what role climate change is playing there. I don't think we can say climate change plays a significant role for why they never come back. In directly, directly related to the Wolverine. I think climate change has played a significant role in the relationship to their prey. So, you know, we've had the largest terrestrial mammal crash since the, you know, the bison on the plains uh, in North America with the, the crash of the George River caribou herd, which was at one point the largest herd in Canada and now is at roughly 8,000 animals. So a 99% crash. So there, and it, it, it's it's not just climate change. There was a, there was a you know, I guess a perfect storm of factors, that's how we we like to term it, for that crash. But you know, climate change did play an impact in that, and it would certainly make. That's why you know we get these sightings of Wolverine. I'm a little bit surprised because you know the caribou herds in, in in such dire straits that it would be difficult for a Wolverine to find uh, the current environment. You know, a very hospitable place. So you've had this recent exciting report, the headless animal. So <laughs> so what happens next? We've done a kind of the research piece again to kind of firm this up. So, you know, my conservation officers have gone in and, and we've set up hair snaking poles into something we haven't done in a decade. We've put trail cams out again in the local area to try to really confirm this. And uh, so far we've come up with uh, no results. Um, we'll continue to do the work and, and hopefully, you know, we get to the point where we can 100% yes, you know, the Wolverines come back. I look forward to hearing from you. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Now, you heard Jim Gowdy mention learning about Wolverine when he was a child. Our producer, Molly Siegel, wanted to learn a bit more about the legends surrounding the wily animal. Okay, the Wolverine. In Inu, we call it Kwekwajil. My name is Christine Poker. I'm from Natoshi Shlapdor. I am a filmmaker. As a kid, Christine Poker remembers playing outside with her siblings, not wanting to stop when bedtime rolled around. But there was one thing that would always get her to cooperate. My grandmother would say, come inside, I'll tell you a legend. And then we all dropped what we're doing, what we're playing with, and we all ran inside the tent. And we sat next to my grandmother. She used to tell legends about Guehuaju and other legends. But the one I like most is Guehuaju. 
in those legends, Wolverine, Wohaijo, was usually getting into some sort of trouble. Sometimes he would listen, sometimes he tricked the other animals, and then sometimes he got tricked too. In the end, it's like he never wins. Every legend is a true story for me. I believe in it. And uh, they said the, the reason why Guihuajiu is not here anymore is because uh, he would steal a lot of food from Inu in the past in the country. And they called Guihuajiu a thief. Poker's grandmother told her, Gohaijo's stealing made the elders angry. And when elders passed away, they would take Gohaijo, Wolverine, with them. But Gohaijo's troublemaking is also why Poker loved when her grandmother would talk about him. Sometimes if I, if I choose, I would choose Gohaijo. Because um, the legend is important to me is that uh, there's always laughter. And the, and the storyteller is always laughing, and that's what, I, that's what I like, is to laugh. Poker worked with people in her community to make a film about Gohaijo, Wolverine. I did the uh, legends, like I film. I did filming in my community with the kids and also elders. Gohaijo, Wolverine, who shifts his form and always gets into trouble... For poker, he's still out there. I hear legends about Guihuajiu, but I haven't seen one myself in the country. And um, I've been in the country a lot, like fishing, camping. But I never see Guihuajiu myself. It's like in, the, in the legends, I know Guihuajiu is here. All right, from the legendary, shape-shifting, elusive wolverine to an entirely different kind of species that, for one, is much easier to spot. I'm talking about politicians in Ontario, now appearing frequently on doorsteps, at rallies, and on social media as the provincial election campaign swings into gear. We're paying attention because Ontario is behind only Alberta when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. So what the parties promise on climate change and how the province votes matter. Mike Crawley is the CBC's Provincial Affairs reporter at Queen's Park, and he's with us now. Hey, Mike, have you been out on the campaign trail this week? Hi, yes, I'm in uh, Vaughan, uh, the the suburb uh, just north of Toronto. I'm actually quite near where the Highway 413 is going to be. (laughs) How convenient. (laughs) Our listeners know all about 413. Okay, Mike, before we get to campaign promises, let's look at what's been done to address climate change in Ontario in the last four years under the progressive conservative government. I mean, just about every single observer uh, has looked at what's happened related to the environment under Doug Ford and the Ontario PC government, and uh, they're despairing. So the first thing the Ford government did when uh, they were elected uh, was to cancel Ontario's cap-and-trade program. They immediately started a a fight with the federal government over carbon pricing. They fought that all the way to the Supreme Court and eventually lost. They scrapped uh, Ontario's uh, independent and 
environmental uh, commissioner's office. They reduce the powers of conservation authorities, which are regional bodies that have a role in uh, protection of uh, watersheds, uh, for instance, and protected lands. They also uh, reduce the number of projects that would be subject to provincial environmental assessments. A lot of this was under done under the guise of you know helping to get the economy rolling again coming out of COVID-19. Uh, it was also seen as a way of getting around uh, environmental regulations. That is a very long list, but also it is against this backdrop. There is the looming shutdown of the Pickering nuclear plant. That's going to leave a gap in the province's energy grid. The government canceled all renewable energy projects too when it was elected. So if it's re-elected, it would ramp up natural gas production to fill that gap. What what impact would that have? There are some ideas of small modular nuclear reactors, but it's going to be quite a few years before those are, are really online. So it seems to be that there's going to be greater reliance on natural gas-fired power plants, which is going to make uh, the grid dirtier. And it is projected to be a 400% increase in the amount of carbon generated by Ontario's electricity grid, which sounds like a lot, but again, you got to remember that's coming from the low level that it is uh, currently right now. So uh, you, you mentioned this earlier, Ontario did release a new emissions reduction plan in April. Can you give us some idea of what's in the plan? So the new emissions reduction plan was really quietly released. I mean, they, they didn't make anything in the way of a splash about it. And it shows a fairly significant shift from what the Ford government had proposed to do uh, in 2018 to get to the 2030 targets. They are no longer counting on any emission reductions from the transportation sector. Uh, they had previously been expecting, oh, there would be a significant drop in emissions because of uptake in electric vehicles. There is a heavy reliance between now and 2030 on cuts in emissions from Ontario's steel mills. So uh, steel is produced in those massive furnaces that are predominantly coal-fired. And so the biggest single emitters in Ontario right now are the steel mills. And the Ontario government is projecting that there will be significant drop in the emissions from those steel mills as they move to electrical-fired furnaces. And what about emissions from buildings? Is that in there? There's no real significant reduction expected to come from buildings, uh, you know, in particular homes. Uh, and that matters because this is one of uh, Ontario's biggest sources of emissions. Uh, buildings account for, you know, in the neighbourhood of 25 to 30 percent of emissions in Ontario. There has been a sense, though, that Doug Ford um, and his government, now his party, have been making uh, electric vehicles. Um, there's more of an embrace of electric vehicles. What, what are the plans when it comes to EVs? Well, this is interesting, Laura, and it's it's more about Ontario manufacturing electric vehicles than it is necessarily about Ontarians driving electric vehicles. So the PCs really see this as an economic part of their, their platform. So there have been quite a number of announcements recently of both federal and provincial government investments in helping the big automakers transition to production of electric vehicles in Ontario. And, you know, you know that the auto industry is a huge part of uh, Ontario's manufacturing economy. A lot of jobs depend on it, a lot of economic activity. And so Doug Ford has been uh, projecting this as the way of the future for Ontario's auto sector. And he was asked a lot about the inherent sort of contradiction in being a government that 
eliminated all subsidies for people to buy electric vehicles and yet subsidizing the manufacturers to produce electric vehicles. So, so yeah, he has a target of Ontario manufacturing hundreds of thousands of electric vehicles per year. Another aspect of this, though, is the, the Ford government envisions a full-on supply chain on the electric vehicle side of things, right from mining the elements needed to produce batteries for electric vehicles in uh, the northern Ontario area known as the Ring of Fire, and getting those minerals down to southern Ontario, where there are plans for a large manufacturing plant. So it's pretty clear that the focus is on jobs, not on EVs. Is that how Doug Ford answers that seeming contradiction? What he talks about around the idea of subsidies is he says that we don't want to be subsidizing rich people to drive around in in Teslas. Uh, He seems to basically feel that drivers will adopt electric vehicles as time passes and that there doesn't need to be government money in it. But you you notice it in the numbers of EV sales in Ontario. While they have definitely increased in recent times, the rate of increase is not as high as happens in Quebec or British Columbia, both of which offer provincial subsidies uh, or rebates to drivers who purchase electric vehicles uh, there. Okay, let's talk about the other major parties that are vying for seats in Ontario. We'll start with the NDP, the official opposition in the last uh, legislature. What what is it said on climate change? Well, I think one of the interesting things, just as a quick overview of the three other parties, is their similarities on climate change absolutely outweigh their differences. So what the Ontario NDP is offering is actually not dramatically different from what we're hearing from the Ontario Liberals and the Green Party of Ontario. So the Ontario NDP's proposals on emission reductions is a 50% reduction uh, by 2030. This is, of course, from 2005 levels and net zero for Ontario by 2050. And the Liberals? Identical uh, proposal from the Liberals and the Ontario Green Party's identical for 2030, but they're aiming for net zero by 2045. So the, the differences are in new ones. I think, though, Laura, there's other aspects of everyone's platform that seem to be trying to target folks around the combination of affordability concerns and environmental concerns. So, for instance, the Ontario NDP unveiled recently their platform for home energy retrofits. It's going to help reduce emissions, but it's also going to save you money is the pitch because it can make your electricity bills, your home heating bills uh, less. The Ontario Liberals are proposing a splashy $1 transit fare across Ontario. So any transit Uh, system, whether it's the subway in Toronto or the bus in Windsor, the fares would be $1 at least until 2024. And this is again being pitched as an affordability thing, but it would also, according to the Liberals, take several hundred thousand cars off the road or the equivalent of several hundred thousand cars off the road. You know, the Ontario Greens have quite a comprehensive climate change and, and environmental plan, as you would expect. A key thing in it that's being proposed by the leader, Mike Schreiner, are uh, green jobs. So for instance, free tuition for people who enter into programs that would lead to environmental type uh, tech jobs. 
So, and also, uh, Mike Sharon won the first ever seat in Ontario for the Green Party in 2018. How likely is it that the Greens could pick up more seats this time? Yeah, so this is an interesting thing politically. You know, uh, the Greens have hovered around sort of 5% of the vote. Uh, one thing that could make things different this time is Mike Schreiner will get to participate in the major leaders debate. And he's a quite a good communicator. So I could see some votes being picked up by uh, Green candidates in other ridings. I'm not quite sure whether it's going to translate into more green seats, uh, but but Mike Schreiner himself told me that that he sees quite a number of conservative voters who are concerned about the environment, feel that the PCs are not doing enough about the environment, but who don't necessarily want to vote Liberal or NDP for ideological reasons. So I would see at best the, the Greens winning two additional seats. So they could have influence if we end up seeing a minority mm-hmm. uh, government elected uh, here in Ontario. I've seen that in British Columbia. Uh, but then what about the voters, though? In the federal election, climate change was seen as, as, a, as a big issue for voters. What about in Ontario? How big is climate change as an issue for them during the campaign? I mean, it shows you just how much things change and can change quickly. In all of the polling that I've seen, climate change is just not making it up there. Maybe 20% of voters are putting it into their top three issues. The people who care about climate change and who want to vote related to that are absolutely passionate about the issue. But right now, for the larger majority of voters, the number one issue out there is affordability and cost of living. And second appears to be health care slash COVID-19 and the pandemic. All right, we'll watch it unfold, and uh, I'll let you get back onto the campaign trail, Mike. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Laura. Now, you may have heard Mike mentioned at the beginning of the interview that he was near Highway 413. That's a proposed highway that the Ford government wants to build across several suburban areas uh, of Toronto. We did an episode on Highway 413 and what it means for climate change, and uh, you can find it on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to follow Mike Crawley on Twitter, you can. That's at CBC Queen's Park. And we'll have more coverage of the election in the weeks to come. If you are in Ontario, we would love to hear from you. Are you voting for climate in this election? Email us, earth at cbc.ca. That's it for us this week. Special thanks to the CBC's Mike Crawley in Toronto. This week's episode was produced by Molly Siegel and associate producer Rachel Sanders. Our intern is Callie McTavish. Matthias Wilson is our engineer and our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. And just a note of farewell for our award-winning producer, Kristen Nelson, who you heard earlier in the show. After 15 years of creating stellar radio on shows like The House, The Current, Ideas and The Doc Project, Kristen is moving on to an exciting new job outside the CBC. She's going to be missed by the team here at What on Earth and me. We wish you well, Kristen. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.